The FDA is set to approve booster shots for everyone. Is the U.S. about to announce a diplomatic boycott of the Olympic Games? And the research is in. We now know the perfect way to hug. Wednesday need to know. Let's go. This is Cheddar's Need to Know podcast for Wednesday, November 17th. I'm Jill Wagner here with Instagram newsman Mosh Wanunu. Hi, Mosh. <laughs> Good to be with you again, Jill. Um, I think you're our original friend of the pod. And so I just want to say, first off, congrats on your success. Since the last time you've been on the podcast, your account has just blown up. Uh, for anyone not following you, it is at Mosh, which is uh, at M-O-S-H-E-H. I, you know, I, you know how they say in statistics, correlation is not causation, but I will say that uh, every time I've done the Need to Know podcast, I've, I've, I have doubled my following as we've grown. I want credit. Yes, we want, we want credit for your success here at Need to Know. Uh, But no, really, congratulations. um, And I absolutely love your account. That's where I get a ton of my news from. Uh, So let's start here with uh, COVID boosters. The FDA planning to authorize Pfizer's COVID booster shot for all Americans 18 and older as soon as Thursday, which is tomorrow, according to The New York Times. Uh, The FDA would do so without consulting its advisory committee, according to The Times. Now, we know individual states like Arkansas, California, Colorado, New Mexico, West Virginia, also New York City. Uh, They've already expanded booster eligibility to anyone 18 and up who was vaccinated at least six months prior. Right now, federal regulators only recommending boosters for people 65 and older and those at high risk. Israel has been a few months ahead of us in terms of vaccination. Now, they only consider people fully vaccinated when they've had that third booster shot. In the UK, Boris Johnson said this week that he wants to do the same. So, Mosh, do you think that that's going to inevitably happen here, that we're going to need three shots to be considered fully vaccinated? Or are vaccine mandates just too controversial? Well, you know what's so interesting is that if you recall when the vaccines were originally being approved, there was the idea that, like, guys, we might need to get this annually, right? It might be like the flu vaccine. And we're going to have to see. I think in the next 90 days will be telling. You're seeing an uptick, slight uptick so far in cases in the Northeast, Midwest, uh, slight uptick in hospitalizations. Notably, those are two areas that were not hit hard last summer by Delta, which really kind of took its toll on the South and Southeast. Uh, and over the summer, the Delta situation was in areas that were the least vaccinated. So what we're about to find out here is in the most vaccinated part of the country, Maine and Vermont, I believe, are two of the most vaccinated states. They're 85 percent, 90 percent of adults. If they're having an issue, you might see the you know booster become a permanent presence uh, of our lives. But to your point, Jill, you know, it's gotten so controversial now. You know, I've heard anecdotally from folks who've gotten the vaccine or the two initial doses. Oh, my God, I got to get a booster now. Like, this is getting ridiculous. Um, I think one piece of good news that hopefully ensures no mandate on a booster um, is the fact that you've seen these antiviral pills uh, get some um, initial good headlines, Merck and Pfizer, both put out theirs. And you saw a great headline yesterday. Pfizer is promising to sell their uh, antiviral. This is the three to five day regimen that if you get diagnosed with COVID, uh, you take and nearly uh, eliminates uh, most people from having to go to the hospital. They're selling that inexpensively to 95 of the poorest nations on earth. So hopefully 
that should help both domestically and, and also globally. That's huge news. Uh, I want to turn now to two trials that are being really closely watched, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and also the trial for the killing of Ahmad Arbery. Uh, let's start with Rittenhouse. Day two of jury deliberations starts today. As a refresher, Rittenhouse, who's 18 now, he was 17 last year when he shot and killed two men during Black Lives Matter protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He also shot and injured another man who survived. If convicted of the most serious charge, first-degree intentional homicide, he could spend his life in prison. Uh, there are tons of racial undertones here. Uh, we do want to mention all three of the men who were shot are white. The trial has had a ton of surprising developments, particularly when Rittenhouse himself took the stand. He wound up sobbing uncontrollably. His lawyers have been arguing that he was acting entirely in self-defense. Um, during the trial, e even that man who Rittenhouse shot and who survived admitted in court that he did point his own gun at Rittenhouse before Rittenhouse shot him. And Moshe, I say these developments are surprising because in this case, the mainstream media, and I hate even using that term, uh, but there was this narrative going into this trial that Rittenhouse is this white supremacist, vigilante. He brought an assault weapon across state lines looking for trouble. Um, what are your big takeaways as you've watched this trial over the last few weeks? You know what's so interesting, Jill, is like you and I probably consume more media and more news than 99% of people just because of the nature of our profession, right? And for us to watch a trial and be like, wait, wait, that's a thing? Wait, one of the people pointed a gun at him? Like, how do I not know this? I consume so much media. And so I, like you, hate the term mainstream media because I always tell people, like, there are thousands of media outlets. But in this case, I'm going to go with mainstream media because I feel like the vast majority of the media that I have consumed uh, felt like it was taking sides on this. And I understand this is a story of a you know a vigilante 17-year-old crossing with a semi-automatic rifle. Like, what's he doing in Kenosha? But it does remind me of, if, if listeners will recall, the Nicholas Sandman story, uh, the high schooler from Kentucky who was photographed in the National Mall appearing to be a racist bully, but then when you pulled out, um, you saw that effectively he was being bullied and he got like a multi-million dollar settlement from the Washington Post, CNN, et cetera. Anyway, back to this trial. Um, I, I will say that um, ultimately here, you know, one of the lessons I take away is the case will, you're only as good, your side is only as good as the lawyers on it. And so far, I have not been impressed with the prosecution. I know that they've tangled with the judge who's had his own controversy. Um, but ultimately here, you know, it's, it seems as though uh, until the closing arguments, they didn't make a great case. Um, and the closing arguments, I thought they did a good job of saying, you know, if, if uh, that, you can't claim self-defense for a danger you created, Kyle Rittenhouse. At the same time, um, ultimately, it looks like uh, he's not going to be convicted of most of the charges, at least if you know for most legal observers. So I do hope, though, that that does not lead to violence. I know that they've uh, positioned 5,000 National Guard in uh, anticipation of this verdict this week. And Moshe, could we just also quickly discuss the way the jury was picked here? And I'm not talking about the jury selection, but but the actual jurors who are going to be deciding this case. You mentioned we both follow so much news. I have never heard of this happening. I have not either. So in a, 
what is new to us, but apparently this judge in Wisconsin has been doing it for a couple decades, he says. He has the defendants pick randomly out of a box the numbers uh, of the jurors uh, who will hear the case. So 18 jurors have been sitting in. Um, 12 will decide the case. So the judge yesterday had Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, go into a, a box and pick out six numbers. Those six jurors will not decide. The 12 numbers left are the jurors who will decide. But it just added an extra layer of kind of bizarre to a trial that has already had <laughs> a lot of <laughs> interesting developments. Uh yeah. I, and, and on a serious note, though, I watched your Instagram live on Monday and I, I thought you made a really interesting point about the parallels between the Rittenhouse case um, and also that of the men charged with killing Ahmaud Arbery. He's that 25 year old black man who was shot and killed while he was out for a jog. He was unarmed in Georgia. And you say that both cases do show what happens when people try to take the law into their own hands and not rely on police to do their jobs. Yeah, you know, it's two technically different circumstances, right? The Arbery killing and the Rittenhouse trial down in Georgia, the Arbery case, as you say, it was three uh, white men in a pickup chasing Arbery, a man they thought was a burglar. Turns out he didn't burglarize the thing. They tried to hold them, hold him, making a citizen's arrest uh, with no evidence till the police arrived. Uh, he fought back because he's like, who are you? And then they shot and killed him. So they're uh, on trial right now, these three men. And the bottom line is this, whether it's the three men in Georgia or Colorado Rittenhouse, this is all, you know, men taking up guns in the name of protecting the public. Um, and then they wound, it up, they wound up killing unarmed people, claiming and then claim self-defense. Self-defense, obviously, a huge cherished doctrine here in the U.S., but at a time where we have these expanded gun rights, growing extremism, we're seeing more of this. You know, you have a lot of states now where there's stand your ground laws, castle doctrine, you know, you have a right to defend yourself. Um, even the militia, by the way, in Michigan that uh, people may recall tried to arrest and try and then execute the governor of Michigan, they believed they were making a citizen's arrest. So it's just notable that we, you know, we, we spend so much time focusing rightfully on police use of deadly force and the role race plays and determining who they suspect of crime. But what about average untrained citizens? We seem to see more and more of this. And, um, you know, is there just a larger lack of faith in government, lack of faith in law enforcement that is now seeming to make these types of instances more um, more frequent? Uh, no, it's a great point. Uh, switching gears on the China beat, some news that broke right after we wrapped up the podcast yesterday. The Biden administration will soon be announcing a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Games now just three months away. This is according to reporting from Josh Rogan in The Washington Post. Mosh, what is the significance of a diplomatic boycott? <laughs> so let's just boycott sounds big. Oh, my God, we're boycotting. I, this basically means that Jill <laughs> Biden, Joe and some cabinet secretaries and governors aren't going to be in the stands waving American flags. OK, so just, you know, our, our, our athletes take part as normal. Uh, but like the political delegation of like, you know, Kamala, you know, the, the second gentleman, Douglas Emhoff, will probably not be at the Olympics um, this winter. Now, you have to go back, even for this level, uh, to the Cold War. So in 1980, the uh, games were in Moscow, and we actually did a full boycott where the athletes didn't show up in 1980. The 84 games were then in Los Angeles, and the Russians returned the favor by also not having their athletes show up. And so obviously that was much more significant. Why, by the way, did we not send athletes to the 1980 games? because of the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. Um, now, you can argue that between stopping the investigation of COVID, holding war games and threatening Taiwan, 
killing any sense of freedoms in Hong Kong. And then, yes, the one million plus Uyghur Muslims that the Chinese are reportedly holding in concentration camps. China, you would think, deserves a full on boycott. Uh, even of our athletes. So this diplomatic boycott is sort of like a slap on the wrist, if you will. At the same time, you know, one of the reasons we're not doing it or like taking things up to that notch is you, we, between the U.S. and China, we control the global economy. Uh, we're not, neither of us are probably willing to get into a full military war with each other. So we keep kind of dabbling around the edges uh, of like, we don't like what you're doing. We're going to not send, you know, the second gentleman to the Olympics. In yeah. Oh, no, not a diplomatic boycott. Um, it does feel like, though, there are no good options when it comes to China. I mean, they've built up their military. We They took the U.S. by surprise by testing that hypersonic missile. Um, they're buying yeah. up ports across the globe. They manufacture basically everything. Uh, dare I ask, what is the end game here? I mean, is it inevitable that China is just going to become the world's top superpower uh, and it's their world and we're just living in it. You know, I, I was reading recently, you know, I, um, I, I don't want to be too wistful about America, but we're turning 250 years old. And it turns out if you look historically that most empires, the average age of an empire is 250 years. You go back to the Romans, the Greeks, the, the, the uh, British, um, and we're hitting 250 here. Um, it does seem, if you look at the recent events, right, we don't want to be in Afghanistan anymore, et cetera, that we're kind of over being the whole world superpower thing where we have forces around the world. But we do like the prestige and the power and what it means to us, um, bottom line, economically. So I don't know if there's an end game here. And the Chinese have certainly learned the lessons of the Russians, the Soviets, I should say, in terms of how to create this hybrid authoritarian capitalistic model in a way the Soviets never did. So I don't know that we can depend on a you know, a Berlin Wall moment, a Gorbachev, you know, ending moment from China. China's China's in it for the long run, and hopefully so are we. So we'll just have to learn to live hopefully. with one another. <laughs> um, peaceful coexistence. You'll laugh. Um, Josh Rogan, who broke this story, uh, he was on Barry Weiss's Honestly podcast talking all about China and the origins of COVID. And I was promoting this podcast so much because I it, it really opened my eyes to just the situation with China. So I was promoting it so much here on our podcast that someone wrote in um, – Find someone who loves you like Jill loves that podcast, because I was just like every day talking about it. Um, anyway, he's, he's done some. And by the way, I, I will say this. I, I probably put up on the Instagram account um, Rogan's piece. This would have been like two months into covid, like May 2020 being like, guys, there's some real legitimate questions about this Wuhan lab. And this is back when we all thought we got covid from a pangolin. Right. And he's like, no, there's some real issues here. And here's some State Department documents. So he's been doing some good reporting going far back on China. Um, all right, let's switch gears and talk a little tech. Apple's AirPods, a huge part, of course, of its business model, helping to generate billions of dollars in sales. And while it may seem like everybody's wearing them, Gen Z going retro with corded headphones, dangling wires popping up on Instagram accounts of popular Gen Z celebs like Bella Hadid, Lily Rose Depp, and Zoe Kravitz. There's even an Instagram account called at Wired It Girls to document the phenomenon. According to the Wall Street Journal, AirPods are just too widespread to be cool. And I should note for anybody who's listening and not watching us, Moshe is wearing corded uh, headphones. What's going on over there? Actually, I intended to wear my AirPods. I did not charge them overnight, which is one of the pieces of feedback I got from folks when I pulled when I pulled my followers. Like, what do you listen to? They're like, ah, I always forget to charge my AirPods. 
Now, I will say that typically 99 times out of 100, I would be speaking to you from AirPods because I am elder millennial, geriatric millennial, shall we say, uh, and not that hip. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I spent the day yesterday uh, speaking to students at Scarsdale High School in Westchester County about social media and news consumption. So maybe it got, you know, subconsciously got into me. <laughs> I, I have to say that there is something ironic about the fact that the Wall Street Journal is giving us the trend on what is cool and not cool. You're like, well, let me read the Wall Street Journal trend section to find out <laughs> what the next generation is up to, right? Um, you, look, I'm totally into AirPods. Um, and, and you know what? It's like the, there's that chuggy. Is that how you say it? Chogi? Chuggy. That's yeah, I think chuggy. it's chuggy. I've only seen it written on social media. Yeah. Okay. So that's sort of like the, what the Gen Zers call people like us. Um, yeah. and I'm chuggy, whatever, by definition, like I, I have a side part, I wear skinny jeans, um, and I've tried the middle part. It does not work with my face. I've tried baggy jeans. They do not work with my mom bod. So sorry, Gen Zers, I am who I am. And part of that is I like AirPods. I feel like once you get rid of the cord, it's hard to go back, especially if you're working out or you're running, like they get stuck on stuff. Um, I just don't yeah. think they're convenient. Also, yeah, and then I um, lose them. Sorry, I lose totally. them. They get stuck to each other. And now I have three corded earphones, like, and I'm spending five minutes untangling <laughs> them. And not only that, I'm to the point where if I don't charge my AirPods or if I just can't find them, which happens all the time, I don't even go back like old school how you're doing. I just put my phone on speaker, which drives mm. my husband crazy. He's like, you have AirPods. I've, I've lost them. He's bought me new ones. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not I'm not on with this trend at all. But by the way, fair warning, Jill, I read this. I haven't done full research, but speaking of Shugi, I did see a trend post yesterday that Gen Z's decided blonde hair is out. Just what? want you to be aware. <laughs> I just want I just saw it in one place. I haven't confirmed the sourcing on it. But just FYI, someone born between 1996 and 2008 has decided blonde hair is out. Um, whatever. I'm staying blonde. <laughs> unless I get pregnant again, and then, you know, all bets are off. Um, okay, now this is a great story that I first actually saw on, um, on your Instagram page. We should end here on a warm and fuzzy note, the perfect hug. According to new research from psychologists at Goldsmiths University of London, the perfect hug should last between five to 10 seconds. With crisscrossed arms, the report also noted that hugs, uh, one of the most common types of effective touches. Um, it's fascinating that this was even studied. So a few a few things I learned from this report, which I read in the in the uh, London Telegraph yesterday. Uh, number one, there's a Goldsmiths University in London. Number two, <laughs> they have taken time to study hugs. <laughs> and it's like, you know, a great I got some notes from Brits who are like, of course, we're not very affectionate people. We have to study these things in England. Like, what is the hug and what is the perfect hug? So um, there's two types of hugs I'm learning. Uh, I never thought about it before. There's the high, low neck, uh, sorry, the high, low hug, the neck waist hug, where one person is putting their arms up on the high side and one person is putting their arms on the low side. And then there's the crisscross hug where both, each partner is kind of spreading their hands across the other's back. Um, they scored each hug for what they termed, and I have not, uh, forgive me, Jill and listeners, I have not gone into the deep um, footnotes of the study, but they studied one. They, they basically had each participant in the hug score each hug for, quote, arousal, 
and pleasure. They found one was better for arousal and one was better for pleasure. Um, anyway, needless to say, uh, my wife and I last night tested out both hugs for 10 seconds. And we've decided that we like the neck waist high low where each partner has kind of their own zone on the other's back. We decided that that worked for us. Okay, good. You know what? I also tested this out. I, I, I cannot even believe we're admitting this, but I also tested this out with my husband. And I actually did find that crisscrossing the arms, I found that to be very, very comforting and effective. So oh, kudos to this so, team. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. We. I, I'm glad we're all following up on the uh, important, important work at Goldsmiths University of London. It's been a rough couple years. I feel like we all need a few hugs here. Um, we okay, do. Time we do. Far for... too many Zooms. Go ahead. It's, it's true. All right. Time for some more to know before we go. Uh, usually, Carlo and I would go back and forth reading this, but today I want to do kind of like a, a rapid fire. So I'm going to read the headline and then most you could just give me your quick analysis. Um, sure. Shares of electric vehicle makers Rivian and Lucid are on fire. Both now have a market cap higher than many of the legacy automakers, despite having few vehicles on the road. I hadn't heard of Rivian until last week. They go public. They're 12 years old. It is now the third most valuable car maker in the world. They only made their first delivery of a couple hundred trucks to employees last month. And they're now valued at $140 billion, more than Volkswagen, and only just behind Toyota. And then Tesla. Market is on fire. Uh, it is wild. They valued uh, more than Ford, but Ford actually invested, has a big stake in Rivian. So Ford uh, made a ton of money when Rivian went public. Um, on the gas front, could we be getting some relief at the gas pump? The International Energy Agency says major oil suppliers like the U.S., Russia, and Saudi Arabia will be driving up supply through the end of the year, potentially helping to alleviate those sky-high gas prices. Yeah, so we know that a bunch of those countries uh, who make up OPEC um, like oil prices to be at a certain level right now are above $80, which is sort of their sweet spot for making profit. But as I was looking at this, by the way, because so many Americans are complaining about uh, gas prices, we are actually in the U.S. the largest producer of oil in the world. It just so happens because the government doesn't control the spigot, so to speak. It's private companies that it's harder for us to turn things on and turn things off. But uh, as far as analysts I've seen, gas prices should start to be coming down in the winter later this winter. Oh, all right. Good news there. Uh, the famous Staples Center in Los Angeles will now be known as Crypto.com Arena. The new logo will be revealed during the Lakers-Nets game on Christmas Day. It doesn't totally roll off the tongue, <laughs> I got to admit. <laughs> crypto. Crypto.com Arena. I know there's some Angelinos who are like, I'm going to always call it the Staples Center. You know, it's interesting. It's like, oh, this is so weird. And then I realized I grew up in Chicago and always knew Wrigley Field. So, you know, we go back more than a century and companies have been sponsoring stadiums. But like in Chicago, we had Sears Tower, right? Sears Roebuck and Company, which just closed their last store in Illinois this week. But then it became Willis Tower. And I don't even know what it's called anymore. But like, I'm still an OG Chicago and it calls it the Sears Tower. So I feel like if you're in LA, it's going to take a while for crypto.com arena to become a thing. Um, and the New Year's Eve celebration at Times Square returning after taking a hiatus last year because of the pandemic. Mayor Bill de Blasio saying the event coming back in full strength, but everyone celebrating will need to show proof of vaccination and wear a mask. I'm, I'm, I'm still not going. On that one. 
I'm still not going. <laughs> I did it a couple of years ago with my friend, you know, Zussel. Uh, we did it to do it, and we never want to. I don't think you ever need to do it again. I don't get people who do it more than once. Of course, you did it with Zussel. Uh, why is that not surprising? Um, uh, yes, he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a friend of the pod, and he's one of those people who needs to do everything in the world at least once. Literally, every country in the world. He's about to hit 100 countries, Joe. Um, I love it. And and by the way, I, these days, if I could actually make it up to midnight, like if I could stay up past midnight, that's success on New Year's Eve. Um, so yeah, no, Times Square, not in my future. Mosh, as always, so good to have you on. So great to be on with you, Joe. All right, that is what you need to know for Wednesday, November 17th.